0: we do have the privilege uh, today of having uh, Adam Venable with us to deliver God's word to us. He's serving, and he'll share more with you, I, I hope, about his ministry at, with Reformed University Fellowship down at the UAB campus. Many of us got to know uh, Joe Dennisy in his time there. He's up at the, the Promised Land, Penn State, serving on their campus now. So, I mean, you've got to throw him in the briar patch, got to throw him in the briar patch. But uh, we are excited to have uh, Adam on that campus and have him with us today to, to share and deliver God's word. So, Adam, come on. Thanks, Chris, for that introduction. And like he said, my name is Adam Venable. I'm the RUF campus pastor at uh, the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And my family and I arrived there last September. My wife and two children. We have a two-year-old and a six-month-old. My wife's name is Lucy. And our daughter, uh, sorry, my daughter is Lucy. My wife is Lisa, two L's. And my son's name is Eli, another L. But it's great to be with you this morning. Thank you for those of you who've already introduced yourself to me and I hope to get to meet more of you later. UAB is a really exciting place to do ministry because there's a great need there. Um, I can think of one student who he is a sophomore, but spent his freshman year basically becoming an alcoholic there at UAB. And uh, through God's mercy, you know, saw the The error in his ways and headed off to rehab at the beginning of summer. Uh, But now he's back at UAB and he's not sure if he's a Christian or not, but he's sober and he's been coming to our UF. And so he's just one of uh, many of the students that we have in our UF and who we get the privilege of ministering to there. But what I wanted to begin with this morning talking to you about is the power of stories. I know we've been looking in the Old Testament or you've been looking in the Old Testament. And stories have been on my mind a lot Uh, lately. Being here in the cafeteria reminds me of stories of my childhood uh, around the lunch table. But I gave the eulogy to my papa's funeral only about a month ago um, up in New Hope, Alabama. And I was reminded when I was working on the eulogy of one of the stories that my papa always told as we were growing up and it was about his father. They lived in East Tennessee and they lived up on a mountain. And they got to the point where they could not earn a living and they were afraid of starving to death up in the mountains of East Tennessee. And so my papa's father came down out of the mountains and into this city called Middlesbrough, Kentucky, which is right on the border of Tennessee and Kentucky. And he tried to find a job, but no one was hiring. And so one day he found a ditch filled with men who were working and he jumped down into the ditch. And he just started working and the foreman saw him working and came up to him. And, you know, he said, look, I didn't hire you. I'm not going to pay you anything. I don't know why you're here. But my papa's father said, look, I'll work all day. I'll work all week for free. Um, so let me work. I don't have anything else to do and see what you think. And so at the end of that day, the foreman was so impressed with my papa's father that he gave him a job and he started to earn a living. And so when it was time, he sent for his wife and children, and they moved down out of the mountains of East Tennessee, down into the metropolis of Middlesbrough, Kentucky. And that story, in a lot of ways, has shaped, in profound ways, my family. What does it mean to be a Venable? That's my last name, Venable. And the stories of the Old Testament were really meant to do the same thing, to shape Israel. What did it mean to be an Israelite? Who are we? What does God expect from us? And so as we jump into this passage this morning, I just want you to consider maybe there's something in the story of Israel for you and that maybe Israel's story is really your own story. So as we jump in this morning, let me pray for us quickly and we will jump right in. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and The meditations of all our hearts together be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer, father and son and spirit. Well, you're invited to look with me as we read the passage beginning in 1st Samuel, chapter five, Samuel, chapter five. Samuel, five. Samuel five begins this way. But when they arose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashtad to this day. And I'll stop there for now, but. So this morning, we're in the book of First Samuel, as you've been, as you've been the last few weeks. And the name of First Samuel is a little bit confusing, as Chris might have told you. Originally, First and Second Samuel were one book, just called Samuel. And it was only later that this was broken up into two books, First and Second. And the book of First Samuel is not really about Samuel. First and Second Samuel is really about David. David's calling to be king of Israel. And what David's reign of king looks like. So here in chapter five, we're in the events leading up to the calling and reign of King David. And it's David who will be called by the prophet Samuel, who Jews traditionally think actually wrote uh, this part of first Samuel that we're in. He lived about a thousand years after Jesus Christ, give or take. And so in the previous chapter in chapter four. We saw how the Ark of God was captured by the Philistines An Ark is just a fancy name for box Ark of the Covenants, like the box of the covenant. It says holy box and it was captured by the Philistines because Israel had lost respect for God's presence in Israel. And the loss of the Ark to the Philistines caused one Israelite to cry out, the glory has gone into exile. From Israel, since the ark of God has been taken, the glory has gone out of Israel. And so we begin in chapter five, verse two, where it says that the Philistines brought the ark into the house of the God of Dagon. Already, if you've read uh, much of the Old Testament, you might remember the God Dagon and the story of the strong man, Samson. Samson, who was captured by the Philistines. And when he was captured, the Philistines praised Dagon. Dagon. Oh, thank you, Dagon, for giving us a victory over this mighty man, Samson. And so the Philistines have captured the ark and they bring the ark into the house of this God, Dagon. Now, in Birmingham, false gods look a little bit different in 2015, but at this time, a thousand years before Christ, they actually made statues that they hoped would connect them to the divine presence. Um, This might make you think of Romans chapter one, where the scripture says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so the Philistines hoped that this house would share and house both Dagon and the God of Israel. The Philistines had added the God of Israel and the Ark of the Covenant like a trophy that they were going to put in a trophy case, along with their great God, Dagon. But as with presidential elections or the NBA uh, MVP contest, there can be only one in the end, only one president, only one MVP. And so there could be only one God. Here in this house. And so the Philistines awoke the next day, the scripture says, and they find the statue has fallen over. Dagon's statue has fallen to the ground. You can imagine this podium just falling down here before you. And so they prop it back up. They prop the statue back up in hopes that this is going to fix the problem. Only they go to sleep that night and they awake the next day to find that the statue has not only fallen again, Dagon's statue, but that it has been decapitated, its head cut off and its hands cut off. Um, This has this leaves the Philistines humiliated. Um, The victory and the celebration and the joy that they thought they were living in has now been turned to humiliation and fear as this symbol of their victory and power and might has fallen to the ground. Um, they experience what the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 40 of Isaiah. To whom will you liken God or what likeness compare with him an idol? A craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it been not told from you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth to whom will you compare me? That I should be like him. Lift up your eyes and see. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, and the living God shares his kingdom with no one. And that was the point as this statue lay decapitated with its hands cut off in the house of Dagon. And so, what does this mean for us here in 2015 Birmingham, Alabama? What does God want us to see here? And I think there's two things. And first, it's that there are many daggons alive and well here in Birmingham. Uh, false gods, false gods of intellectual power, of sexual power, the power of money and security and success, the power of pleasure. And it's a kind of spiritual adultery that says, Christ, I love you. And is, would it be OK if I had this other lover on the side? Jesus, I know that we've entered into this relationship like a marriage relationship, but would it be okay if I brought this other lover to our marriage bed? Would that be would that be okay? There are many false gods all around us. Pleasure and power and possessions that we want. We want to share our hearts with them and Jesus. Just like the Philistines wanted this house to have Dagon and Israel in it. And what God wants us to do is to ask ourselves, what are these false gods that we fall and pray to? Um, Often false gods are just the excuses that we make in order to sin. She deserved it. I deserve better. Just this once. It's my money. But it feels so good. I just need you to like me. I need to be in control. These are the false gods that we bow to. And so we shouldn't look down on these Philistines as if, well, you know, we're so much better than they are because we commit these same sins all the time. So this morning, God is asking you, what are the idols in your own heart? What, what does he want to expose in your own heart, even as Christians, as we sit here today listening to his word? And second, I think the scripture wants to encourage us and to give us a word of encouragement. Amidst the discouragement you may be feeling here today, because things seemed bad for Israel when the Philistines captured the ark. They cried out, The glory has departed. Things seemed bad when Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate. Things seemed bad when Christ was crucified and died and buried. And it even says he descended into hell. It seemed like the glory had departed. But God's victory and defeat of this kingdom of darkness and the God of Dagon should be a word of encouragement to us that the resurrection and the life of God is here for us now. That while we walk on this earth, which is often difficult, isn't it? God just doesn't want to give us platitudes this morning. Life is difficult, but God's promise is that Jesus reigns at the right hand of God above all our difficulty, above all our struggle, above all our tears and above all our sickness, above all our doubts that we have about whether or not Christianity is even real. Jesus reigns and rules above it all, our prophet and our priest and our king at the right hand of God for us. So even when things seem like they were hopeless, Christ has promised us infinite hope in him. But our scripture continues in verse six. It says the hand of the Lord was heavy against both the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not remain with us. For his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. It continues. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of God of the God of Israel be brought around a gap so that so they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of the God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out. They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were struck with tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. President. Obama only recently, about a week ago, requested the use of military force against the Islamic radicals known as ISIS, and this was justified because ISIS posed a radical threat to U.S. national security, as well as a total of four American hostages brutally murdered by that group. And likewise, in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, God sanctions violence when, his, when the peace of his kingdom is threatened, God sanctions violence, especially in the Old Testament. When the peace of his kingdom is threatened, and so beginning in the city of Ashdod, the Scripture says, and then Gath, and in the city of Ekron, God's hand was heavy upon the people. It says, and the Hebrew word here that gets translated in English. Uh, Tumors is a little bit uh, soft, I think. The Hebrew might even be better translated severe hemorrhoids that even lead to death. The King James, if you have that translation in front of you, uses the phrase that God was heavy in their secret parts. In other words, in a place most intimate to them, God was bringing judgment and pain. Their victory celebration had been reduced to cries and screams towards heaven. Scripture says God's hand was heavy against the Philistines, not like a father disciplines his children. But like a father protects his children from the enemies of his family. Let me say that again. The violence going on against the Philistines is not like a father disciplining his children. Which sometimes is painful. But it is like a father protecting his children from the enemies of his family. And the Philistines had threatened the peace of the kingdom of Israel. And God saw that saw fit to bring violence and wrath against them. But what gives right? Sorry, what gives God the right to demand allegiance to his kingdom? There are lots of people uh, we're especially reminded of in the news lately that demand allegiance to their kingdom. And God is one of many voices in our culture today demanding allegiance to his kingdom. What gives him the right to ask that? Well, we see the answer in the Ark of the Covenant, which has been captured by the Philistines. What should we call a God that would be willing to leave heaven and come down to earth? For you and for me and for our salvation. What would we say about a God that would leave his glory aside up in heaven and come down to earth in our mess and in our sin and in our misery? The scripture says in the New Testament that God became flesh and tabernacled. just like the Ark of the Covenant was tabernacling. Christ tabernacled among us. Should we listen to a God who suffered and died and was crucified for our salvation so that we might live? You see, God's right to demand allegiance from the world is based on his devotion to save us from sin and misery. He doesn't just stand at you and say, look, I made you and you better listen to me. God doesn't just shout from heaven saying, look. You're responsible to me and you better do what I say. That's not the Christian message. The Christian message is, I came and I died for you. Won't you listen to me? I came and I gave my life that you might live and I gave up everything for you. Because I love you. Won't you please listen to me? And bow the knee to my son, the Lord Jesus, because he loves you and cares for you. So what does that mean for us here in Birmingham, Alabama? And I'll finish with these two things. And the first is that is God wants us to see in this passage, y'all, that idolatry is miserable. Idolatry and sin are miserable. The people of Ashdod and Ekron and Gath hope to get the victory over Israel and just add Israel's God to their collection. But God's punishment against them is the consequence of their spiritual adultery. The scripture says that sin is sweet in the mouth, but bitter in the stomach. Somebody told you that sin has no fun to it. They lied to you. Sin does have something sweet to it, doesn't it? Uh, Just like the fruit that was offered to Adam and Eve in the garden, I'm sure it tasted good. But the scripture says that sin is sweet in the mouth, but bitter in the stomach. And that sin leads to corruption and pollution and disintegration. God's ways are the best ways, and sin is the worst way. You know, it really shouldn't surprise us that a movie like I know this has been controversial, but a movie like Fifty Shades of Grey has come out. A book promoting violence, Um, violence amidst sexuality. And, you know, it's marketed as this fantasy which actually turns into a nightmare. And its message is that women ought to tolerate physical abuse as long as the abuser is rich and attractive. Because we all want riches. And we all want to be loved by someone that we think is attractive. And these false gods grip our hearts, don't they? Not just culture out there, but even our but but even our own hearts become gripped by these false gods. But the message of First Samuel five is that sin is miserable and God has ensured that it would be miserable. Righteousness is difficult. Righteousness isn't always fun. But sin is miserable. The Westminster Larger Catechism puts it this way. What are the punishments of sin in this life? The punishments of sin in this life are blindness of mind, strong delusions, and hardness of heart, horror of conscience and vile affections. The fruit Of idolatry is just pain and suffering. Um, Sexual sin promises power and success and safety and love, but it only delivers isolation and separation and disintegration. True joy is only found at the right hand of God in Jesus Christ through faith in him. The second thing that I think this next part tells us is that it reminds us what we deserve without God's grace. It reminds us what we deserve without God's grace. Scripture tells us that I would be no better off. You would be no better off than Ashdod and Ekron and Gath under God's judgment were it not for God's mercy and grace. Proverbs one says, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. And they will seek me diligently, but will not find me. You see, at this time in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel 5, God's salvation was for Israel and no one else. And though God was preparing Israel, through whom the Messiah would be born and take the good news to the whole world, at this time in 1 Samuel 5, salvation was for Israel and no one else, which is why God's judgment and heavy hand was upon the Philistines. We're just like the Philistines in the perspective of 1 Samuel 5. I'm a Gentile. You're a Gentile. I'm a Philistine. You're a Philistine. And apart from God's grace, we only deserve his wrath. And y'all, you might have heard this said that God's judgment should be like the smelling salts of the soul. You know, smelling salts that revive you if you've passed out. You can't live on smelling salts. That'll kill you. But they can wake you out of spiritual sleep and spiritual lethargy and spiritual numbness that, God, I'm responsible to you and I have not loved you the way you have. You expect me to. I have not loved my neighbor as you've expected me to. And I only deserve your wrath. Our passage says that the cries of the Philistines went up to heaven that day in first, Samuel five and a thousand years later, there would be another cry that would go up to heaven. The writers of the Gospels record uh, record the cry of our savior from the cross as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, God put his heavy hand onto his son that you and I might receive the hand of his mercy. And of his love and of his grace as the scripture says his left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. God puts his heavy hand on spiritual adultery. So we must look to the faithful one, the son of God, who is stricken and smitten and afflicted for us, that we might be forgiven and loved and adopted into his family. And if that's your hope this morning in the Lord Jesus Christ, the good news for you and the good news for me is that God has taken your guilt and cast it into the depths of the sea. And God has taken your sin and removed it from you as far as the east is from the west. That's how far God has removed our guilt and our sin from us. Not because you're a good mom, not because you're a good father. Not because you do well in school, not because you pray a lot, not because you're a member here. But simply because Jesus died for you and God is gracious and kind and he loves to be kind to sinners. And so if you're the kind of person that has committed spiritual adultery, you're the kind of person that Jesus died for. If you're the kind of person this morning that is discouraged and you don't even know why you're here at church. You are the kind of person that Jesus died for. If you're the kind of person this morning who feels like giving up as a mother and you are so tired of your children and they are driving you crazy. And you feel the guilt of that because you want to be a good mom. Taking thinking of my own life. Then you are the kind of person that Jesus died for. And he took all your shame and all your guilt away. But even as you stand here this morning, God might say to you, you're my beloved son. And with you, I'm well pleased because I've adopted you and I died for you. And your sin doesn't define you anymore. My grace goes before you like a great tent. Some of you have been tailgating, seeing these great tents that they have at football games. Kind of goes before you. God's grace goes before us. Wherever we go, covering us. That we might love him and worship him and turn from him, even in the midst of the misery of our sin. So in closing, let me just invite you to pray with me now. Um, Pray that God would humble us to make us aware of the misery of our sinfulness, that he would fill us with his love in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us died for idolaters like me and you, that we might turn from our sin and even love him more and more. Let's let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do confess to you that in our hearts lurk dark things and dark places. And we pray that you would expose the dark things in our hearts and the misery that comes from them, that we might find joy in you, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the salvation that he's won for us. We love you and we thank you for salvation. Would you make it real to us today as we rest from our work and remember you who rested from the work of our salvation. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen.